Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about the topics of biomedical informatics, words that mean nothing to anybody unless you've actually been listening to this podcast. Not quite true, but there it is. I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt. My Twitter handle, and I encourage you all to follow me on Twitter, is at KBJVanderbilt. So this month we feature a topic at the intersection of informatics and what's called health IT. That has to do with how do you get software that is being designed to improve processes and outcomes in an environment into that environment. It's not as simple as you may think, and we cover some of those issues. To do this, we actually have five guests on this episode. Dr. Rob Turr is an emergency medicine physician who was in the middle of his clinical informatics fellowship at Vanderbilt. Dr. Dara Mize is an assistant professor of medicine in the division of diabetes, endocrinology, and metabolism, as well as in the Department of Biomedical Informatics. She is an adult endocrinologist and focuses on diabetes and thyroid disease, but also is clinical director of IT at Vanderbilt, one of a few. Her work interests focus on efforts to improve the clinician experience with the EHR and to support change, which enhances clinicians' ability to provide excellent patient care. Together, the two of them have been working recently on the topic of this podcast, which is why I thought I'd get them on here together. Silas Dean is a friend and a self-described serial entrepreneur, well-known to people in this region. His most recent and highly successful venture is a company called Vend Engine that builds and deploys cloud-based software for the corrections industry. Bernard Salandi is a 30-year veteran of the corrections field. He's been a certified correctional health professional and a certified jail manager, among a lot of other roles. He started his career as a corrections officer for the New York City Department of Corrections. You know, working in the corrections industry is tough enough. Can you imagine doing that in New York City and what you'd see and what kind of person you'd have to be? Whew! He's had a number of high-level jobs in the field here, including most recently being deputy chief of the Rutherford County Detention Center. He is now retired from that role and is vice president of business development for Vend Engine. We also have a songwriter artist on the show today who has a tie to one of our guests. They have the same name, but he's the younger, cooler version of his dad, Silas. I do the best I can to help you know which Silas is speaking, but when the discussion gets going, just enjoy the banter and don't try to keep up. Interestingly, young Silas, like a lot of musicians in Nashville and elsewhere, has a side gig that it turns out is relevant to today's topic. The entrepreneurial spirit is strong in that family. So as I mentioned, this episode focuses on the challenges of software development. It's a complex topic, and we really just skimmed the surface of it. So apologies to people who were hoping we would get deep into some of these topics, but I go where the room goes, and today we covered the top of a topic that's much deeper. We'll dig into more issues related to software in some future episodes. For those of us in the IT and informatics business, there will be a few aha moments in this episode. We play a little game to showcase the big differences between what Bernard and Big Silas do in the correctional system versus what Dara, Rob, and I do 
which I think ended in a tie. Oh, and of course, with a songwriter artist in the house, we get into music. But not into country music at all. And we discover a pretty surprising connection between music and the environment at scale. I don't want to give it away, so you'll have to listen for it, but I can tell you we're coming back to this particular topic later. Okay, let's get this going. Everybody smile so I can get a picture, ready? Younger Silas had a chance to uh, share with me some music. So I have his piece of music right here that I want to play for you guys. I'm going to, just to give you a general sense of it, you know, this is a show that's called Informatics in the Round, which started out by basically featuring Music City, country music. But what's really great is that Music City is only about 30% country music. Most people don't know that, but there's a really big jazz scene here, and there's a lot of other scenes. And... And so, younger Silas, how would you describe your scene? Um, my type of music personally is more like rock, pop, dance music influence with some EDM. Um, it's kind of all over the place. So I actually started as a guitarist, uh, you know, loving the Van Halen album. I found it in my dad's car, actually, when I was like six years old and wanted to be like Eddie. And so I got a guitar, played every day, um, and then, then I... Uh, shifted into more like EDM, electronic dance music, and then I shifted into, now it's kind of like pop dance. So let's see what you guys think. Ready? I'll play a little bit here. feeling I know where you could get some more of that. It's actually yeah, not gonna out have to yet. Share that, si. You're going to have to share that, man. I want to hear more of it. When does it come out? Is that kind of style of music? Uh, that song has not come out yet. We're planning on releasing it in about one month. It's actually currently being mixed and mastered right now. Uh, it's very like 80s. If you continued it on, there's like a big 80s guitar solo. When we were like watching, when we were trying to think of an idea for a song, we were like, all right, what's that idea when you know, the, the guy with the big hair turns around in the purple lights and he realizes that the nerd girl that he has known his whole life is actually the one for him. And <laughs> with the big guitar solo hits right as they kiss, you know. Yeah. 
sparks fly. That's kind of the idea we were going with with that song. I love it. I love it. So the question is, will Hallmark pick it up and put it at the end of one of their movies? <laughs> I hope so. If anybody has any connections, listen to this. Please let me know. That would be like the most rad song I've ever heard on a Hallmark movie ever. <laughs> but I would agree. You never know. You never know. Well, good luck. It's very yeah, cool. Yeah. So Silas, big sigh. I have to I have to put you on the spot here. So every parent's nightmare is to have a kid who wants to like be into music at the age of you know ten or or whatever. When did this start, and how hard was it for you? Well, you know, it's what's amazing about Silas' story is that he is self-taught. I mean, he's had a few guitar lessons here and there, and he had some structure to it, but very little. So a lot of that is self-taught, and it's pretty amazing what he's actually achieved in it. But I did require him, as his father, to get a degree before he could pursue his music. <laughs> and, you, and, you, and you didn't care what it was in? I, I, as long as he had a degree, I was happy. And uh, he did a great job. Uh, Vanderbilt degree is not too shabby. No, so. it's not. Congratulations to you. you. And yours was last May, May of 2019, right? Yeah, I graduated last year. So I still got to walk, um, unlike my unfortunate friends this year who just graduated. Yeah. Now, Bernard, have you met Little Sizeless before? Oh, yeah. Well, he works with us. So, yeah, I see him every day. Did you, did you know about his music? Uh, he talked about it a little bit, but I never heard anything. So I want to hear more of that. I'm like, definitely, he's going to have to share that stuff in the office. I want to hear oh. more of it. Yeah, it sounds good. It's good stuff. But the new song that, he's, that I'm going to play at the end of this, which you guys will all hear next, when you turn on the podcast, you'll hear it because you don't get to hear it until then. Comes out, you said May 29th. Is that right? Yes. The song that you're going to play at the end, I believe, yes. uh, we're releasing that next Friday. And this is part of a full EP. Um, we're going to call it When Earth Stood Still, you know, referring to the coronavirus pandemic. So <laughs> timely. And, uh, yeah, very. Um, yeah. Now, Rob, tell me about, tell us about your music uh, background. It sounds like you've got a pretty extensive one, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. You see the things that people are interested in when they're pretty young. And I guess the first picture that my parents really have of me doing anything other than sitting around in a diaper was banging on their piano with, you know, like a... <laughs> towel on my head and I uh, called it my duck hair and I guess I was destined for metal. I apparently ran the the grooves out on Def Leppard's Hysteria before I was two years old and you know so some things you know it's like it's like Silas was saying I just don't think some things are, are up to you I think it's just how it is so you know I grew up playing piano some and then playing drums and discovered the guitar when I was 14 started listening to David Gilmore and uh that was kind of that. I, I really wasn't up to much in life until I found the guitar. And after doing that, it made me realize that, hey, if you work hard at something, uh, not only can you create cool stuff, but it turns out positive reinforcement is really important and is a ton of fun. And so, you know, it's funny that you mm -hmm. talk about creation because I think a lot of the, the same features that go into creating music, both in the, the two sets of phases, there's the conscientious planning phase, the design phase where you really think hard and you think consciously. Mm -hmm. And then there's the go life. There's the instinctual improvisational kind of preparation meets stimulus moment when all of these things happen together and you just kind of, you know, you just let it happen. So uh, it's funny kind of hearing those stories and, and thinking about how that relates to informatics and medicine in general. I think, again, you study for a long time, but you never know who's going to walk in the door. So true. Now, I want to come back to that, but first, I just have to put Bernard and Daryl on the spot here. So, Bernard, tell me about your background in music. Uh, uh, listening, 
Um, <laughs> well, you know, growing up, I was born in Trinidad, so my first love was calypso music. So yeah. Once I came to the U.S., I mean, we always heard R and B, you know, but I'm more R and B type person, all the old school stuff, showing my age. Well, you know, I, when I saw that you were from Trinidad, I thought that there would be some story about you in a hat, looking looking particularly Caribbean and playing in a band, doing a little reggae on the some side. None of that, huh? Now, well, you remember, our, our music is steel band. So that, that when I was a kid, that's what I, you know, we all aspired to be in, uh, oh. in a steel band member playing the pans. I don't know if you ever heard that music, but oh, yeah. I mean, it'll, Are you kidding me? it'll blow you away. Yeah. Yeah. Dara. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us all about your yeah. musical background. <laughs> uh, mine is a little more similar to Bernard's in that I like to listen to music. I actually come from a very musically inclined family. Both of my parents were at one point in their lives paid musicians, but um, they, it, it really, it just didn't, I didn't inherit that gene. So I have to say, so I'm going to go back to what Rob was talking about here which was the whole idea that a lot of the influences that, that maybe drive people who are into music also turn out to be really relevant to informatics. And one of the things that every one of us on this call has in common in some way is this translation from creativity to the use of information in different ways and the use of it potentially creatively and the tools that you build to do that. Little Silas, you and your dad are sort of kind of complementary, I guess, in terms of what you do. So tell us again what it is that you're doing. Might be better if he starts first and then I can kind of tack on a little bit what I'm doing. Uh, you want to show him up. Okay. So uh, <laughs> well, man, I can start. I can start. If you oh, no, too late. Too late. Big silence. What are you doing? So uh, our company is a, uh, is a cloud-based software company and we work primarily in the correctional industry, but you can imagine uh, Kevin, as we go into a, a correctional facility and tell uh, people that run a jail or a, or a prison that we're going to put in cloud technology into their prison and all of a sudden all the questions come up about data security and, and all kinds of things. So what we do though is a full service suite of applications that really have three different customers. When a person is incarcerated, they need services. They need to be able to file a grievance. They need to be able to order commissary. They need to be able to do all kinds of things. That's what our software allows them to do. On the administrative side, they need to be able to monitor, they need to be able to watch, they need to be able to you know, control. And so our software does all that as well. And then you have the component of the family members on the outside of uh, the prison or the jail, and they need to communicate and they need to uh, connect with the inmate as well. So our system is a holistic system that does all of those things. So what's interesting about that is yours is, pay, is a sort of um, inmate facing because they actually can use that system to order things? Uh, correct, so uh, the inmate can do a lot of things. They can file a, a grievance against the jail. They can, uh, they can read, they have access to a law library. They have um, all kinds of things on our, on our kiosk that would be in their cells or in their pods. Uh, they can send emails, they can do video visitations, they can make video calls even, kind of like a Skype call. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of things they can do. Okay, I got a bunch of questions. And this is so, this relates so strongly to what Dara and Rob just did. So this is going to be very, very interesting. Little Silas, how does your business show up what your dad did? Yeah, so now that you all understand kind of how their client or kind of outward facing and inward facing thing works, what I created was an advertising module that is outside facing and inside facing. So kind of acting as the window between 
corporations that want to be seen inside and outside, but it's non-invasive towards the inmates or anything. It's, you know, focusing on the corporation payment side of it. Kind of like, it's kind of like niche Google ads. Yeah. Almost uh, exactly how that thing kind of works, how Google ads works where they, where you can host an ad on your site and you know they'll pay you for a percentage of that income. Uh, this is kind of how this works, except it's in this space. So if I understand that right, the inmates get ads while they're ordering things? Eventually, how it's going to work, ideally, commissary systems could run uh, discounts or hot buys or be able to move different product similar to a market on the outside as well. Have we ever thought about putting ads in an electronic health record? I think patient access, though, has a lot of overlap. I mean, there's a lot of things we do with with yeah. My Health at Vanderbilt that I think the line is pretty close between advertising and... Um, making people aware of different services that are available and how much do you push versus passively display and where is the line between uh, providing a valuable service and becoming invasive. And I think all those same themes probably come up in a lot of the things that we do. It's interesting that you asked that question about pushing ads on the, on the EHR. I guess it'll be more on the provider side, you know, where you can push out new medical methods and technology to them. It yeah. wouldn't definitely won't be on the on the inmate on the client or inmate or whatever you want to call it, the offender, but right. definitely yeah. I mean it's it's another and those are the things that young size looking at you know the new market. Yeah, and on Bernard, let me follow up on Bernard for just a second. One of the things we were maybe confusing is advertising and information. Sometimes we forget uh, on an EHR or on a platform like our own is even what I'll call internal house ads the ability to push information to uh, an individual, a patient or, uh, or someone like that. We, we forget sometimes, we, we want them to log in, we want them to do something, but at the same time, we have an opportunity to push information to those individuals as they're using that system. And really what Silas has created is a system that allows us to, to put these house ads and or advertising into there so we can push information at the patient or at the, at the individual. So I'll tell you a funny story. The president and CEO of Vanderbilt recently asked me whether there was a way that we could do the equivalent activity in my health at Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. um, so you are absolutely right, Rob, that this is something that's come up and we, were, we had never thought about it. You know, it had never once crossed our minds. The idea was essentially this. We believe that precision medicine, the whole idea that your genome, you know, your genetics should be used to help you to um, get the right medications, or that there may be something about your particular location in the country, your geolocation in the state, that would determine something that we might want to tell you, like there is a measles outbreak in your area. It would be great if you would get your booster. Um, and he asked, well, can't we do that through my health? Can't we send these targeted messages? And the answer is, it, we can. It's actually a part of the structure. There are a couple of places around the country that have thought of it, but um, you know, we never had. And, when, and one of the things I said to him, which I think is a great segue into this issue about you know, computer systems and go lives is, I said, you know, if we didn't have a system like the one we have, this conversation would be impossible to have because for you to be able to do advertising, Little Silas or, or anybody else, we also have to have adoption of the platform that you're gonna use on which to drive that. 
Um, now, Dara and, and Rob have just been through the ringer. And, and I think talking about the platform that it takes to drive that, which we've all been a part of, but I thought it would be fun to start with them about this, is this issue of what we call go live. And um, I was CIO at Vanderbilt for a while. And one of the things that I had to do was to transfer us from a homegrown electronic health record, which essentially one, is one that was built by a relatively large team of people, but completely conceived of as a brand new creation and was tailored to specific users. And then we had to implement that. We tried to, we knew that if we were gonna buy new hospitals, we would not be able to successfully implement that system. And so the decision that we made for a bunch of reasons was that we needed to go to a more standardized system. We chose Epic. Epic is one of the largest electronic health records in the world. That was a very difficult move to go from an electronic health record that was homegrown at Vanderbilt to one that was more standard internationally. That probably paled in comparison to what Dara and Rob just did. Would you tell us a little bit about the Wilson County infrastructure and, and what you had to do to get them to the point where they could use a system like Epic? Um, yeah, sure, happy to speak to that. Um, it was a really interesting experience and it was a quite different in many ways from what we experienced um, in 2017 that you're referring to, Kevin. Um, I would say, you know, in both ways that were advantageous and disadvantageous. So um, I think, you know, on our downtown campus when in 2017, we had a, a fairly broad adoption of electronic workflows and um, many of our users interacted with, um, you know, of the electronic system. We had a few holdouts, understandably. Um, and I think the difference is, one, that was kind of one of the key differences when we um, had this recent implementation is there were still quite a few paper processes um, that that took place at this hospital so it wasn't just changing from one system to another there was you know kind of a complete change in the way that um, many of those users would work and where they did have electronic systems the other thing that was a little bit interesting is you know we sort of took for granted that they would have a certain functionality such as providers entering their own orders into an electronic system but uh, and you know we said do you have provider order entry yes we do but it turned out that um, kind of as you got into the details a little bit more, it would it, you would find out that they do have that, but it's you know the provider puts the order in a system in a computer and it prints out on a piece of paper. So there it wasn't quite the same thing as what we thought in our minds when we thought we were making that transition. Um, interestingly enough, that made it probably harder in some ways for them to adopt um, because the paper processes that they were used to were quite efficient um, for them um, as they were used to them but there were significant disadvantages to the fact that they had such a disjointed system and i think that is one of the reasons that we've had pretty um uh you know across the board success there is the new system is so much more integrated so even for the users who were um, you know probably slower at using the system now the there are many advantages to the fact that they could now sort of see the entire patient's story um, in a way that they didn't have before so it is just such a better um, product than that, what they were used to i think that was one of the main keys to success so rob were people afraid of the whole process or did they embrace it from the very beginning i think you saw a mix and i think contextually it's important to bring up the idea that this wasn't the first transition that this team had dealt with before and i think in 
in some ways comparing that with big Vanderbilt um, versus sort of Wilson County Vanderbilt. For us, we'd only known this one way, but this team has gone through several transitions in the last couple of years. And so it showed their mental toughness and their ability to respond to that. I still think like any, like with any other situation involving change, it was painful. It's always painful. Um, but there were enough benefits. And I think the initial apprehension very quickly gave way to excitement after people saw the number of resources that were being put towards the project. And once they realized that perhaps unlike the transitions in the past, we actually were seeking their input. And more importantly, their input was the foundation of everything we were doing. So I think those factors and the time spent doing that made a big impact on the fact that those teams felt like they were listened to, felt like they were part of the team. And so once that happened after the first couple months, uh, I didn't feel like the buy-in side of things was much of a challenge. Wow. So Bernard and Silas and Silas, I, I can imagine that if I were in a, in a corrections facility with all of the issues you have going on there, that the whole idea of transitioning from anything to anything would have been a, a major issue. Talked about, talk about that. What's it like for you guys to get into a system and say, I've got all these great ideas, but it's gonna require all this time and all this new energy. It does take a lot of planning and conversations and, and at the end of the day, relationships. So, you know, um, prior to me coming on board advantage and being on the, the client side of it, you know, I had to learn that not just the administrators, but also the IT department, uh, the staff, the inmates, the, even the county legislature, everybody had to buy in into transforming into, you know, new technology. So it, it was, it's been a great curve to see where corrections is going, you know, for the future. A lot of people in law enforcement and corrections are, you know, it's, it's the old guard. It's, it's changing, but you still have a lot of people that, started their careers in the 70s, to be honest. And so they were used to pushing paper and like Cy alluded to, you know, old Cy, that, you know, we are always thank you, by the way. Thank you for old Cy. I really like that one. I'll be using that one now. I like that one. <laughs> I like that one better too. We're, we're yeah. always, you know, on guard about security. We all have to be comfortable with the new solution and, how is it going to be implemented? So it, it takes a process. And once we are comfortable with the actual vendor and the way they explain how things will work and the time frame, you know, that's another big issue. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, you know, it's interesting. Every time you go in, I, I think kind of like Rob said earlier, you kind of have those that are just ready for change and then those that are just going to resist it at, at any cost. Uh, and it's kind of funny. I remember actually the first time I met Bernard, uh, and I went in to kind of show him our technology system, his uh, skepticism level was pretty high because he pretty much already heard it all before I got there. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he, he was a tough nut to convince that we could go down this road and do these things. And, uh, you know, you're introducing significant change into an industry that's been around since what, before Jesus, you know? So, I mean, this is, this is a, uh, these are, these are uh, significant changes, but not on top of that, you also have all these third parties that you have to pull in, such as the medical team, such as uh, you know, uh, other, other people that interact with the facility. So uh, you know, I've run into, we did an install down in Morgan County, Alabama, uh, not long ago, and, 
And I remember probably the biggest resistance we got uh, was from the medical staff because they already had their processes. And all of a sudden we're introducing this new thing to them and they didn't want that change. Well, that's a consistent, there's a consistent finding that we find. Yeah. It's the medical staff. But we were able to overcome those. And, you know, it takes a lot of training. And like Bernard said, it's relationship building and it's those things. It's a trust factor, uh, especially when you're dealing with something as kind of old school as corrections would be. So, so Dara, this is nothing like what you went through, was it? <laughs> uh, a lot of similarities, of course. I think the, the relationship piece can't be stressed enough that, um, you know, without you know, nearly relocating to Wilson County for about five months, um, you know, it's impossible to make something like this a success if you don't have that relationship with the, the people who are going to be using the tools to, to help you make it in such a way that, that it's going to be usable for them. And to Rob's point earlier is letting them being the decider for those decisions about how it's going to work for them. So when we were working on the Wilson County project, did you find a Bernard-like person who was at Wilson County who really helped to shepherd you guys in because you weren't known to those people. Um, yeah, I mean, Rob, I'm sure had, can provide some examples as well, but um, really some of their, the nursing leadership at that hospital were just fantastic to work with. They had been through so many of these transitions in the past. And I think uh, we're, we're, we had some, a little bit of an advantage in that we didn't really begin this implementation the, the main part of the hospital implementation, there was a, a clinic implementation uh, several months earlier, um, but we, we had some time to sort of get to know them and to work with them um, for many months before we, we did this process and in that time built trust and I think it's that um, Rob alluded to, we are here, we're here for you, we're here to make it work as well as possible for you, and that means we need you to help make these decisions and help understand what you're deciding. And I think um, their engagement, that engagement from those individuals who are also leaders at that facility um, helped make it such a success. You know, they were the ones who could influence others to sort of, um, you know, share the same attitude for the most part. Um, obviously, you have those who, you know, still resist, but um, I, I really think it was their strong leadership that um, that helped their facility so much. So I want to play a little game. We've got little Silas, we've got Bernard, we've got Silas on one side. We've got Rob, Dara, and me on the other side, okay? And the game is going to be, you guys come up with something that you think is in no way related to what we had to do with Wilson County. In other words, I'll start. The prison system doesn't have to deal with the fact that the information that we're trying to send across from one provider to another can kill, could kill somebody if it's wrong. And therefore the data conversion process is incredibly hard. You guys have no idea about that. True or false? 100% false. Oh, 110%. <laughs> Every, everything you deal with in society is happening in corrections. You gotta remember these are people that, that were taken from everyday life but put in a confined area so you're dealing with a plethora of diseases um, blood-borne pathogen the whole gambit so yes the records the communication between the patient the nurse the doctor even the outside providers all have to be in tandem to treat that individual if anything is a rate we'll all be in federal courts for a long, long time. And that's the court system, they don't, they don't work. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's try it on the other side. What's something that you guys think you deal with that we don't have to deal with? Uh, let me think about this for a minute. Well, advertising right now, it seems like. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> you got to buy on that one. Give me another one. If the patient walks out of your facility, he might just be going to McDonald's. My patient might be going back to commit a severe, serious crime. And, you know, it's all about public safety. So that's something that regardless of everything that we provide, public safety is number one. So that's something you definitely want to have to deal with. So does your system, safety, yes. how does your system prevent somebody from walking out? We have people that are trying to hack the systems constantly and trying to pose as a different individual. So they'll know, they'll know the release date of one inmate. So they'll try to uh, sneak in a fake ID or whatever it might be and try to pretend to be that guy. And then all of a sudden you've let out the wrong guy. Uh, wow. Uh, not sure. If, I bet healthcare doesn't have that issue. We have something close. Yeah. Anything, anything that you I mean, have one? I, I, I'll bite on, on Bernard's uh, uh, thing that we don't deal with, but I do work in the ED, so there's a lot of overlap between our two jobs. Uh, we do that, unfortunately, all the time where we have to restrict people's ability to uh, move physically or, or in many other ways sometimes to protect their safety and to protect the safety of the public. So from that standpoint, unfortunately, especially when it comes to mental health and violent uh, abusive behavior, uh, unfortunately, that comes up a lot in, in our side of the world. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll pass on Silas's example for now. At least Dara, do you have any thoughts about Silas's example? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think um, that is a great use case that I would not have thought of. Um, but I think certainly, you know, we think that our uh, protected health information, our PHI, is is probably unrivaled in, in its need for security. But I think that is a, a great comparison to how we deal with the same types of issues of security and protecting those data um, and making sure they're secure for our patients. Um, uh, every day. That's one of our biggest concerns. Got you. You thought you had it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Well, the one I was going to say is it is so common that a mother doesn't have insurance papers for their kid, insurance for their kid, and they will come in and pretend to be a neighbor. And so one of the things that our registrars do a lot is try to make sure that it's really the person that they say it is because yeah. If mom pretends to be the neighbor and um, uses a different name or changes the name in any way, then those two records get merged. And, and suddenly we have a merging problem that we have to then disambiguate, exactly the same problem I would imagine you would have if somebody got somebody's correction state and tried to hack it and fix it. Not only that, a lot of times uh, inmates will give another person's name when they're being booked into the system. So we have to verify that information. Mm -hmm. yep. I would have been the dumbest inmate on the planet. They're very smart. Okay. Dara, Rob, I need you guys. What's something that there's no way the prison system deals with that we deal with? Most of the things I'm thinking of, I'm pretty sure you guys do have to deal with. So I'm, I'm still working through it. Uh, okay. I got one. I've got uh, I'm, one. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, good. no, you go ahead. So, no, I, I was thinking of the, you, oh, go ahead. You go. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, both go. Okay, okay. We'll both go. Now, well, here's mine. Mine <laughs> is when you all make a decision that you're going to implement it it's from the top down, there's no such thing as a mutiny. So the, the, nobody in that system can say to you, sorry, we refuse to use your system or we refuse to play. I, I'm sorry, Kevin. That's, that's wrong. Again. <laughs> 
we've had, uh, I'll give you a great example. We can bring in the best technology solution, make everybody's job easier, but there could be that one person who has done her accounting or invoicing system as she's always done it in the past and she is not going to change that system. And that one person can derail the entire conversation or we all find ourselves working toward that person to try to implement change. Well, look, I'm looking over there at Bernard, who does not look like a small guy. <laughs> and I'm thinking that if he goes over to her and says, look, this is the way it has to be, that she's going to cave. Is that, that's not the way it works? These are the things that, that the struggles that we have to deal with when there's so many moving parts just to get to one place. So everybody has to know how to come to common ground. And some, that's why I said sometimes the process takes a while just to, to do something simple because you have so many moving parts. I mean, sometimes the county commissioners can get involved, the, the, the county executive. It, uh, you'll be surprised how complex some things can get. Uh, I have forgotten about the and county. Sai has dealt with this stuff before. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so little Sai, tell me what you think the problem would be if you were to take your ad system that you've already created and put it into healthcare. I think it would be seamless integration. I think we should talk after this about working on that. <laughs> um, I mean, one thing for sure that you want to take care of when you're working with advertising is, you know, who you're advertising. So you don't necessarily, I mean, you have to be, especially in medical, you have to be really cautious of, okay, who's actually paying us for this advertising? Is it something that's actually good for these individuals or are we getting more income from it? Um, like what kind of information are we trying to pass along to them? I, I think they really work together. It's, it's not like exclusive. It's, it's more of a separate layer on top of the electronic health records, I believe. How often is it the case now that Cy and Bernard have put together this fabulous system in the corrections that we get interoperability between our record and their record? How often is it the case that when one of their patients comes into Vanderbilt, for example, you actually get the care that's been taken, that's been going on in the prison system? You know, in some ways, during those experiences, we received poorer information. But in other ways, the communication, I thought, was a lot better. And there are a number of reasons for that. While our systems were almost never inter interoperable, unlike communications with your average person sitting at home, you always know who is responsible for that patient. You always know who you call to help make a, a disposition decision for that patient. You always have somebody to convey the message that's at least more or less reliable um, with the officers or the guards who accompany the patient. And you have, honestly, for better or worse, and there are definitely, uh, it's a, an entangled thing to deal with, you have less complexity to the decisions because it really usually isn't as up to the patient as it would be in an ordinary scenario. Certainly there is a point where, you know, you're violating somebody physically where that's, you know, you just ethically would never do that, but that's usually not the case. It's more of somebody might otherwise go home. They might get admitted because that's just what the system says is going to happen and you can't safely send somebody to somewhere else. So because of all those reasons, I actually found the care was relatively seamless for most of the inmates for whom we cared. At the same time, it's not infrequent to totally miss a big chunk of medical history because you're only getting the history from potentially that single prison visit. So, you know, if the patient hadn't been there for months or years, you're not going to get that history unless they'd been seen at your facility. So it, it really, in many ways, from that standpoint, is no different than caring for a patient who was 
down the street at another hospital. So curly-haired Silas and Bernard, is that the case that uh, your system supports interoperability or is that something you've given up on? I, I love the fact that I have multiple names, first of all, Kevin, so thank you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I will say this, uh, you know, the topic being Wilson County Integration Go Live, we actually uh, do the system in Wilson County for the, the county jail. And I can't recall a single time uh, that our system was was asked to provide information about an individual. Now that doesn't mean a guard didn't go and look and provide information, maybe verbally, but in terms of electronic communication of uh, information, uh, I don't recall ever being asked. The inmate has the ability in our system to go in and request things, uh, request medical care, request things, and typically in those scenarios, he is he or she is entering information. I don't know that that information's ever to my knowledge, at least, been uh, conveyed to the facility. Is that a good thing, though? I mean, Bernard, you, you and I talked a little bit about it. You said that one of the challenges was that the inmate gets partnered with a corrections officer who knows a lot of that history, but that corrections officer is then taken out of the line and everything else while the inmate's in the emergency room. Would it be better to not have to have that reliance and to have the systems talk back and forth? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's... That's where everyone should be heading to at some point where EHRs can communicate. Through. But what they do now is just email the files, um, something kind of similar to what we do with, with inmate mail. But they'll scan the record and send that digitally to the hospital or whatever office that individual is going to. The office is still going to be there as an escort, but at least the, the, the records would be directly in the hands of the the provider on the on the outside of the facility, but yeah, that's something that you know, and I think you know you have the professionals on the medical side with you, but I think at some point there's going to be some kind of centralized EHR here in this country. I think yeah, I think we all hope hope for that too. If you could teach medicine something about you know the systems that we have in place for patients or providers. Um, that we should be going live with based on what you've had to deal with in the prison system? What would you say is missing? Because I know you straddle both worlds. Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a great question. And uh, if I can dream big for a minute, uh, you know, <clears throat> how is it that I can walk into a, uh, I can walk up to an ATM machine in the middle of Moscow, <clears throat> stick my debit card in there and be able to pull out cash. Uh, but yet uh, an, an inmate is booked into the Wilson County Jail and I don't have any access to any medical records whatsoever. Sheriff Darren Hall <clears throat> at, um, at, uh, in, in Davidson County said to me one time, he said, you know, there's a guy that shows up in Davidson County. He shows up at the airport and he's completely naked. And, uh, and we have to go and arrest that guy and we put him in the jail. Uh, clearly that guy doesn't need to be in jail. He needs to go somewhere where they can get some mental attention, but we have no idea who this guy is. We don't know his history. We don't know anything about him. He could be on drugs. He could be, uh, whatever it could be. I think the law enforcement officials really work at a real disadvantage when they don't have any information. So if I could dream big for a minute, it'd be great if we could carry that information around with us so they would have that access. It would just help in so many so are you saying we need to tattoo all of ourselves so that we have our medical record number on our skin? Or? 
Um, good question. I, I, that's for you guys to figure out how to do it. I'm just doing it. <laughs> well, the police systems, don't they have facial recognition? I mean, don't they take a picture and then send it through and figure out who the person is if they've ever had a record? So they, they typically have a record of a photo or they something like that, but introducing the level of facial recognition or facial detection technologies, that's an, a whole nother level. I'm, I'm not aware of us having something quite like that, but I, um, you know, Epic does have, our system does have uh, the ability to allow patients to sort of give non, uh, just individuals who are not used of our system sort of a glimpse into their medical record. Um, so they have created some functionality like that um, to your point of needing to be able to access it more easily. But I guess the challenge with the patient who has a mental health disorder is going to be that at the time that they are probably relapsing, the last thing they're going to remember is how to get us into their portal. So right. the ability yeah. would have to be, in that case, it would have to be that we have the ability to do identification without using anything that the patient doesn't currently have on him or herself. Big problem. Yeah. To go old school, yeah. Yeah, I, I still think that the thumbprint or the fingerprint technology is pretty sophisticated. Facial recognition is getting better for sure. The key is uh, what database are you tying that into so that right. a, uh, you know somebody can have access to that, but yet also protect that individual's privacy rights and all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. How much does it cost you, Cy, to go live? Uh, that's a very broad question. <clears throat> it really depends on kind of what Bernard touched on, uh, kind of, you know, and Rob both. You know, what resistance are we going to get as we go in? Uh, those kinds of things. But typically, uh, you know, a go live situation would cost us anywhere from five to ten to fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, just depending on the size and the scope of where we're going. But uh, that's just for the training and, and such, the hardware and the infrastructure, all those things you're looking at about a 50 grand. And that's for how many, how many person in uh, prison? That, that would be for a, maybe a facility that has maybe 300, uh, 200 to 300 inmates in it. Okay. I thought it would be about that size. Dara and Rob, do you have any sense of what we spend on training for our, how many, how many beds is Wilson County? About the same, right? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's yeah, around 200. It's a little less, I think, but around 200. How much did we spend on training? Do you know? Oh, I don't know the cost of training. I know the overall cost would be much higher than that. <laughs> Do you have a sense of what the number was? I don't know the, you know, I don't know the actual number for Wilson County. Well, I'm going to take See, a step. What is it? Uh, I'm, I don't know it. But I, I have a sense of this. We didn't get any consultants in. Did we have consultants? Uh, no, not really. Not, uh, no, only our project management. Did we, did we hire anybody? Well, we did hire a few training. I think we hired a few training consultants who were temporary, but, and then and how long mostly was the it was entire, our team. How long was the entire training process? When did we start thinking about the materials to the time we went live? Um, that was probably, gosh, in April. I mean, four or five months. Is that about how long it takes you guys, Silas? Uh, it depends. I've done go lives as quick as two weeks and I've done some as long as, you know, six months. So just, uh, it varies. And again, it goes back to that point of how much resistance do you get? Now we are operating in a different world because, uh, you know, it's kind of a top down world we're coming into. So it's pretty much like, this is the way it's going to be. And you really don't have a choice. Right. So, uh, you know, you get resistance from some administrative folks, et cetera, but Generally, the inmates themselves and the families, they don't have a choice. So, you know, they don't really go to vote on that. So, well, I'll tell you what, it sounds like we're even more similar than we thought because 
certainly Vanderbilt, you know, the big Vanderbilt mothership made the decision for Wilson County that they were going to go live with Epic. That was not a conversation they got to participate in more than just how do we make this work for us. Sounds like our costs were comparable. If we didn't hire anybody and we took about six months, we probably spent about somewhere between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, there were lots of other costs related to interfaces and, but just in terms of training, that's about right. For the go live we had at Vanderbilt, I have to be careful how I use the numbers here. <laughs> any, any, anybody want to guess how much, it, how much we spent on at least training at Vanderbilt? I'm sure it's- Wait, What do you mean by the cost of training? <laughs> what does that include? In this case, the cost of training was, to make it simple, developing training materials and okay. having people available both for teaching people before they went live and supporting people after we went live, I'll say for the first month. Let's say 25 million. I watched the video and I saw an army of people. <laughs> so it, it looked like it took a complete mobilization force to make that happen, Kevin. So I'm going to guess Rob's probably not far off, but I might go do the old prices right and go a little bit lower and come in at like 10 million. Okay, Bernard, what do you think it cost us to train um, roughly 20,000 providers to use roughly four systems at Vanderbilt? And it took us about a year and a half to do it. Yeah, I'm going up. So it's, I would say, 35 mil. You were almost right. Okay, wow. young Silas, Mr. Tech Guy. Um, you can call me Good Hair Silas. You called him Good Hair Silas. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw you hint at pointing down, so I'm, I guess, no, no, lower. No. I hinted at, I'm, I can see him on my bottom right. Oh, see, you're trying to trick me. <laughs> I am going to guess twenty-one million dollars to box him in even farther. Yeah, <laughs> slightly higher. Any other guess, Dara? Did you guess anything? Oh no, I didn't guess. I was I was asking more questions. I was being more that we're including the physician. Yeah, we spent eight million dollars from November second, twenty seventeen, until the end of December. That was eight million. What? For just the training piece? Mm -hmm. Golly. Wow. So that was Part of my tuition bill? Like the <laughs> <laughs> <Did> what? <laughs> yeah, so here's, I mean, here's how it breaks down. When we do a go live of that size, we bring in an army of people to do the training. That army of people are coming from all over the country. We have to cover every one of their expenses. We have to um, build all these materials from scratch because most of these vendors give you a version of the system, but we change that version. So we can't use the things they give us. We have to modify all of them. The whole process of training nurses, registrars, um, you know, obviously the physicians, and then many other people who are in our revenue cycle, which is how we get, make money, took us about a year. Plus our access center was actually very difficult to train. And many of those people had very specific training materials for each group. Dara was involved with that, some of that because we made a shortened version of what we typically train providers. From the moment, so, from the, so all those costs that I'm talking about were getting that group of people who all have to be trained to learn a brand new system because they've never seen this version of Epic either. And in fact, if you had talked to them, they would have, many people said, um, you guys changed this in a way I don't know how to use it. And so we were training them, we were training the trainers for probably six months before we actually were able to go live. And um, actually, 
a bunch of challenges happened there, which is typical, which is the more we used the system, the more we found out the things that we built actually didn't work the way we wanted it to. So we had to train them and then we built materials and then we found out that that was wrong. So then we built new materials and retrained them. And then every single day that we were live, we were busy fixing things. And every fix had a whole new set of materials that we had to train. So all of that infrastructure costs a lot. And there's, the reason I happen to know the one number, the 8 million, is that for our go live, we had a very interesting thing happen, which was there were more than one go live at the same time around the country. And saying this in a way that doesn't get me into trouble, what happened was the company that we had help us with that had to bring in an army of people and they don't get to know where those people are coming from. And furthermore, the issue that we were talking about, about hacking into the system and changing identity, identities, there are people who said that they were an expert in, let's just say the oncology module or an expert in the emergency room module. They'd never seen it before in their life. They were relatives of people who had seen it. And so we had this whole group of people who came into Vanderbilt and actually didn't know a thing about how to train. But luckily we had a test that we gave them all and they started failing the test in droves the day before we went live. So we had to fire all of those people. And then I got to see all of that budget and see what we had spent. And then I got a new group of people that I could get to pay to charge exactly what we still had left because it turns out we had um, missed the window where most people are super vulnerable right at go live because we had missed that window we actually didn't need as many people but we needed way better people so what i made i did was i made a decision to go from this regular what are called um at the elbow support people to a group of people who were actually certified trainers cost more money but we had them for less time and it was basically the same same total amount of money so top that one okay oh, something definitely different than uh making a song yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know we were, t were sitting here talking about you know creativity and go lives and you know the the orchestration if you will of all of these maneuvers that we had to, that we had to do and i did want to finish up by asking little silas to tell me about this um new project he has because you guys won't believe this oh yeah i uh, talked to kevin about this on the phone the other day but i was actually working or interning for congressman uh jim cooper up in dc and you know i was looking at a map of dc and i was like oh this is set up like a grid right so could kind of be read like a sheet of music almost left to right obviously got some flack from some some other interns working up there with me so i decided to prove them wrong and made this big piece i i I found points that I found I thought were interesting, such as like Smithsonian or parks or things that represented the city or embassies and physically wrote out a diatonic scale based on these parts and, you know, then composed my own symphony behind that, you know, as a conversation between mathematics and human emotion. And it's actually evolved a lot now where I've, I've now developed an algorithm to take an image and convert it to grayscale, break it down to the individual pixel, and based on the color intensity of an image and the individual pixel, categorize it in a diatonic scale. So I'm working on the cosmic microwave background of the universe, which is kind of like the most complete image wow. we have of the universe, and converting that into a full symphony. Um, and so I am actually 
about halfway done with the composition as we speak. Hopefully it'll be done by the time everyone hears this podcast. It, it kind of actually weds a lot with the informatics that I've heard from uh, some of the previous podcasts that you've had, Kevin. It is really interesting. And the conversation that we had earlier was, was interesting over the phone. Well, I have this great idea. Dara and Rob, how long was the project plan that you had for Wilson County? Like if you could have, was it a bunch of, was it a bunch of, um, was it Microsoft project or SharePoint or where'd you put it? Every team kind of used their own thing, but. Yeah, a lot that was probably of, one uh, of our one lessons note. learned. A lot of one note. <laughs> well, uh, good hair, Silas. I think one of the Thank projects you, you should do is we should give you the project plans from Wilson County. And you can, right. if you can algorithmically compose a, goal, a piece of go live music. <laughs> wow, that, that sounds like something people would be interested in hearing. <laughs> I think it's a great idea and something that I'll consider on the next iteration. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on the task of getting you the project plan so that you can see them. Because I, be, I bet you that if you take all these different parts that Dara was talking about and all these different project plans, they will have a structure that could actually be another little symphony. And if you do that, I will promise you that we will get you back on the podcast to talk about the use of informatics, technology, AI to create music. All right. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind so I can get back on here and talk about it. In fact, I'll, I'll bet you that if you did it, we could get you at our national meeting. I'll see that. Now, now you're speaking my language a little bit more. I like, I like the way this is going. I might hold out just a little more to see what else I can get. Our national meetings in Washington, D.C. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, Kevin. Uh, I just visited Congressman Cooper not long ago, and he has Silas's thing hanging up on his wall in the, in the office. So that's how impressive it was. When you say his thing, his what is his thing? His he did a map. He's got the map. Composition. Composition up on the wall. Got it. Well, everybody, thank you so much for doing this. This was really fun. I have to tell you, I had it never occurred to me how similar all of these technologies are. And and theoretically, that also, and Bernard and I had a great conversation about it. It also speaks to some of the challenges in informatics and some of the places we should be making sure that we distributes because we we think of everything and that we're doing you know that darren rob are doing in healthcare space but we don't necessarily realize all the different environments where healthcare is occurring maybe we should be doing more work to sort of do things that are in the interoperability space the facial detection piece so i think it's a clear opportunity for us that we really just haven't haven't taken advantage of. Um, I do yeah, want to, very enlightening. I would not have, I would not have assumed that we had so many similarities. I do want to close out because um of, of some of the stuff that you know young strapping Silas has put together. With his new piece. He liked that a lot. So, <laughs> and this um, will be out by the time everyone hears it. Silas Dean and uh, Trey, we collabed on this song. So cool. check us out on Spotify. All right.